Treason, sedition, rebellion. This is the heritage of the American patriot. Those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost. And that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state. Each in their own way, each with their own mission, united for the cause. had the idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primary. I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. You brought a freaking guillotine. People already pushing back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be cast. I'm not ratting on anybody, and I did what I did, so you're going to have to give me what the law says you have to give me. You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. Hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, anarchists, activists, and people of the internet, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. And before we get started, just remember, whatever platform you listen on, whether it's YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends. Now, if you want to enjoy the content and help support the program, you can head on over and join the insurgency on Patreon at patreon.com slash O'Donnell. Again, that's patreon.com slash O'Donnell. And make sure you check out our sponsor, snackswag.com, for all your favorite liberty and subversive merch, including some brand new designs for t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Again, that is snackswag.com, where you can check out all the awesome brand new merch collections, including official new subversive podcast merch and some free state project merch, where you can wear your principles, liberty, literally, on your sleeves. Now, if you also want to keep in touch between shows, make sure you follow me on social media. Uh, check out the uh, Facebook, Twitter, Community Discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. All those links are in the description of the video or the podcast that you're listening to. So make sure you give them a check out today. Now, I wanted to take a break from election nonsense. Take a break from politics. And maybe just talk about something we can learn from, something we can get back to our roots of our activism and work towards going forward. This weekend, I got finally picked up a copy of Barefoot Learning, uh, what shoes can teach us about schools by a friend, Ian Underwood. Uh, I picked it up, finally got my uh, physical copy. And I actually read it a while back. Uh, Ian had sent me a digital copy to help review. Ian, I want to talk about this book review this book and uh, maybe have a little background here now let me bring it up uh, like i said we do have the digital copy here so i wanted to make sure we had that available and uh, we, we do have this kindle version of the barefoot learning what shoes can teach us about schools by ian underwood now if you guys aren't familiar bare minimum books ian's publishing company he's put together this is his third book other books he's published uh do include licenses are the new draft cards uh what COVID 19 taught us about uh about occupational licensing uh, and tons of others on the way as well um but the gist of bare minimum books is that they're all really really short really really quick um a single idea per page whether it's an illustration a single conversational piece or a single uh topic that's it 
per page. So let me make this big, easy to read. Tools. And or we'll get to it at some point. But either way. What we what I want to bring on, like I said, simple, simple book, simple, simple lesson. Feet, we all have them. That's where he starts off there. Um, but you don't think about them much, what they do for you, how they work. We just kind of take them for granted. And this book goes into the kind of the history of footwear, how feet are formed, how feet work, how your feet are served by having shoes and what your shoes do for them, uh, do for your feet. And that's a great segue into what he talks about, what we, what shoes can teach us about schools. Uh, because it goes into the explanation about how a lot of the problems people have with their feet in the modern world, whether uh, flat feet, bad arches, pain when you walk, is due almost exclusively to wearing the wrong kind of shoes, to your shoes not fitting you properly. Uh, and you solve these problems by, well, wouldn't you know it, getting different shoes. So we talk about all of the uh, different problems you can fix with your shoes, all these special shoes, $1,000 shoes, hundreds of dollars on shoes to fix problems that were created by not walking barefoot in the first place, the way your feet naturally evolved to do so. And then he makes a strong case for how it's not necessarily the act of being barefoot that we're learning from, but the problems we've caused ourselves by not being barefoot and how we can learn from that and apply it to other things. And in his book, he makes the case for education. How much of our American education system is dedicated to fixing problems that only exist because we've forced people into a one-size-fits-all educational system. Um, so... Let me bring them back up. Feet, we all have them. But we don't think much about them, much about what they do for us, about how they work. We just kind of take them for granted. Until something goes wrong, then we want to know what's going on. And I think that's a great lesson to learn from. Uh, but not too much about what's going on, because feet are complicated. About a quarter of all the bones in your body are in your feet. But we do have a problem. We just want to be given something that solves the problem. People have lots of problems with their feet. Shoe companies have hired scientists and engineers to study the problems that people have and develop when they're walking or running in shoes. And we've created a $100 billion industry by coming up with technological solutions to those problems. Solutions include heel pads, our support stabilizers, wicking, new high-tech materials, new uses for low-tech materials, adaptive insoles, and a whole lot more. At a certain point, the question becomes, how much do you want to spend? But it doesn't matter how much you spend because none of it works. Each fix introduces new problems without really solving the old ones. 
And so runners and athletes and people in general end up with closets full of shoes, none of which do what they're supposed to. Why? Because the shoe companies are throwing money at the wrong problem. They're asking, what can we add to our shoes to make them better? But that's not the right question. The foot, when operating normally, will absorb energy and then release it again, making propulsion more efficient. There's a natural sequence of events, beginning when your heel strikes the ground. Then you pronate, moving your weight to the outside of the foot. The arch stretches out, absorbing the energy. You supinate, moving your weight to the ball of the foot. The arch returns to its normal length, releasing the absorbed energy. You roll off the big tone, launching the body forward and preparing for the next step. It's basically a spring. That seems straightforward enough, but there's a problem. Shoes. The problem is that this is what everyone, the designers, the sellers, the buyers, think shoes should look like. It's almost as if no one has noticed that the big toe is not in the center of the foot. You have to go back about 500 years to the early 1500s to find shoes that were actually shaped like feet. It turns out the shoe design is more about signaling things like wealth and status and fashion sense than it is about protecting the feet and helping them work properly. In perhaps the most extreme cases of this, the feet of some women in China were bound so tightly that women were unable to walk and had to be carried everywhere. If you can't roll off the big toe of uh, the force that's being absorbed, it can't be released. And that is a big problem. But the basic design of a shoe with its pointed toe box makes sure that you can't roll off the big toe. Over time, wearing shoes with pointed toe boxes deforms the foot, and the deformations make it even harder for the foot to work correctly. So then you need padding under the heels to absorb the force that isn't being released. But that changes your posture, which changes your balance, which changes your gait. Now you're pounding your heels onto the ground over and over. You can wear shoes with padded heels or gel cups or something to spread out some of the force on your heel. But even if you do that, being unable to launch properly means that pronation and supination, instead of being intermediate steps in the process, become the ends of that process. So they become exaggerated. So now you need support structures to ameliorate the effects of the padding. Eventually, the foot is so artificially constrained that it isn't able to flex to absorb the force. It's like turning a pogo stick into a stilt. So that force is transmitted up the kinetic chain to your ankles. So you get ankle wraps and braces. Then to your knees. So you get knee supports and braces. Then to your hips and to your lower back. So you end up getting surgery. Or you just stop moving around so much. The next step is probably jetpacks, but we'll have to figure out how to make them work indoors. <coughs> All of these are ultimately reactions to an initial mistake, which is to cram the foot into a pointed toe box. Once you've made that first mistake, all the technology in the world isn't going to help. <coughs> and the technological fixes have this in common. They prevent, rather than facilitate, the natural process. The problem with an arch support is that it doesn't make your arch stronger. It makes you dependent on arch supports. It's scaffolding that can't be removed. 
The same is true for padding and wraps and braces and other artificial supports. It's especially sad that many kids never even get a chance to use their feet normally. Before they can walk, their feet are stuffed into little boxes that will prevent them from ever working properly. We cringe in horror at stories of Chinese women who had their feet bound, thus ensuring that they would never be able to walk properly. But we're doing the same thing to our own children every day. The way I started thinking about all this at one point was having some feet problem myself. I tried heel cups, arch supports, insoles, sleep aids to keep my Achilles stretch, and a bunch of different kinds of shoes. I was starting to look at custom orthotics. At a certain point, it became a question of how much do I want to spend? But what I wanted to spend was zero dollars. So I started doing something reading. I found a book, Fit Feet for Life by Marco Monetis. Much of what I've been talking about is from that book and others like it. As I was reading these books, I kept getting this tingling feeling in the back of my mind. There was something about all of this that seemed eerily familiar. What was it? And then one day it hit me. It reminded me of school. Now, I'm sure you can see where he's going with this. I'm sure you can see the kind of next logical step, but we'll keep going. Almost everything I've been saying about what happens when we put feet in shoes is analogous to what we do when we put our children in schools. We create a problem, then we try to add fixes that ignore what we did to create the problem. These fixes all work by preventing rather than facilitating natural processes. Then at a certain point, the question becomes, how much do we want to spend? By now, I'm always amazed to find that anyone who hasn't seen the Cato graph relating to school spending to student achievement, uh, which shows that student achievement has roughly stayed the same from 1970 to uh, 2010, even though the total cost has increased on a linear near exponential scale from average of well, that does not correlate with increased scores. Basically, it shows that during the last half century, we tripled per student spending. That's adjusted for inflation, while seeing absolutely no improvement in student achievement as measured by the test designed and administered by the current establishment. Basically, it's a picture of what happens when you throw money at the wrong problem. Once I saw this, I started asking, what's the educational equivalent of the pointed shoebox? We can start answering that by asking, what does a foot do? No, we're not asking what does a foot in a shoe do. As Carol Black points out in her wonderful essay, A Thousand Rivers, that would be like trying to find out what killer whales do by observing the behavior at SeaWorld. A foot absorbs and releases energy while walking or running. If you prevent that from happening, you can't really recover, no matter how much corrective technology you introduce. In the same way, we can ask what does a child do? We're not asking what does a child in a school do? A child imitates people who are doing useful and interesting stuff. If you prevent that from happening, you can't really recover, no matter how much corrective technology you introduce. This isn't rocket science, and anyone who's observed children for any amount of time at all knows that kids want nothing to do with other people are doing. They learn by imitating those people. It's what they're built to do. With feet, the initial mistake, the one we can't recover from, is to prevent feet from absorbing and re-releasing energy by cramming them into shoes. 
with children, the initial mistake, the one we can't recover from, is to prevent kids from imitating people who are doing useful and interesting stuff by isolating them in the schools. So they get bored. So we introduce technology to try and mitigate that boredom by entertaining and amusing them. We create permanent scaffolds, the educational equivalent of arch supports, ankle wraps, and knee braces. We constrain their movements and activities and discipline them or drug them. The lesson of the Cato graph is that it's not what's happening in schools is not a pedagogical problem. We don't need better schools or new technology or new teaching methods. We certainly don't need to spend more money. This is a cultural problem. Kids need to be in the world, learning from the world, rather than being locked away from the world, learning about the world from people who don't actually know much all about it at all. The lesson of the Cato graph isn't that nothing we've tried in schools has worked. It's that we shouldn't have expected it to work. Any more than we should have expected arch supports, anti-pronation devices, gel cups, and so on to work. To fix feet, you need to get them out of the pointed box. To fix education, you need to get kids out of the isolated box. We've always had the choice of working with nature or against it. As Montana has noticed, it's important to understand that the barefoot running is not a trend, but was actually the basis of our evolution and has carried our feet for millions of years throughout history. Barefoot running is letting feet be feet. It's what we did forever until we forgot how. The same is true of what we might call barefoot learning. It's letting kids be kids. It's what we did forever until we forgot how. Reduced to one sentence, here's what shoes have to teach us about schools. We should stop binding both the feet and the minds of our children by getting their feet out of pointed toe boxes, which prevent their feet from, getting, from working properly. And getting their minds out of isolated school boxes, which prevent their minds from working properly. Which leads to an interesting question. How would the world look if we didn't lock children away all day? What if we expected children to be a normal part of our world? That world would be full of people doing useful and interesting stuff with children, their own, or someone else's. Helping out when they can and watching closely when they can't. Why don't we have that now? A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Robert Island. In part, it's because we've developed an over-reliance on specialists, on what we might call the cult of expertise. That is, people have grown used to the idea that they can't really take action because they don't know how, or because they're not allowed to, so they find excuses not to act. The famous psychologist Martin Seligman gave a name to this, learned helplessness. For the antidote, we need to turn to another famous psychologist, Tyler Durden. We said, what we have to remind what we have to do is remind people what kind of power they still have. That's really what Fight Club was about, enlarging your idea of what you're capable of. 
As a recruiting technique, members of Fight Club were told to go out and start a fight and lose. If you lose, the other guy wins, and winning that fight starts to change his self-image. It gets him thinking about what else he might be capable of. Fortunately, there's another way to accomplish that goal without getting hit in the face. Go find someone who doesn't think he can do something. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be shooting a gun, or putting together a website, or canning some food, or changing the oil in a car, or cutting down a tree, and help him learn to do it. Get him to pick a fight with it, and win. Same shit, fewer bruises. Rather than make up fancy new name for all of this, uh, use the one we already know. Do it yourself, or DIY. To give children a chance to do what they do naturally. Imitate other people doing useful and interesting stuff. We need to replace the cult of expertise with the culture of DIY. And the rest of us would benefit from this change as well. DIY undermines the cult of experts by eroding the idea of specialization. When you see other people doing for themselves things that you would normally hire an expert to do, it changes your ideas about what you might be able to do for yourself. DIY makes it harder to lie to people. Have you ever noticed how many errors, some accidental, others intentional, show up in news reports about some topic that you just happen to know something about? Doesn't it make you wonder what else they're getting wrong when talking about things that you don't know anything about? It's easy to lie about guns to someone who's never fired one. It's easy to lie about food to someone who's never grown or raised or harvested any. It's easy to lie about anything to people who have no experience with it. DIY makes it harder to sell people solutions to problems that don't exist. You're surrounded by people who want to cover their world in leather at your expense. Because they've forgotten that they can cover their feet instead. If you understand more, you fear less. If you fear less, it's harder to sell you false security. And if the politicians can't sell you false security, what what else do they have to offer? DIY gives you more control over your life. When you need something, you can make it. When you need something done, you can do it. When something breaks, you can fix it. And assuming this kind of control over your life, even on a small scale, gives you a practice and absolutely essential skill of evaluating risk. You have to consider what could go wrong and what will I do if it does. You become your own first responder. Bruce Lee said, do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. Someone in the habit of thinking that way is harder to scare and therefore harder to control. The right amount of fear can help keep you alive, but too much fear can keep you from living. DIY is a rush. There aren't many things in life more exhilarating than doing something you never thought you'd be able to do, whether that's juggling three balls for 30 seconds or replacing a faucet or stitching up a wound, butchering a lamb, or repairing a generator. But one of them is helping someone else get that feeling. DIY starves the beast. If you can do things or make things or grow things or fix things, then you can barter with your friends and neighbors. I'll do this for you if you'll do that for me. Cryptocurrency is nice, but to paraphrase Marvin Minsky, the hardest transactions to trace and therefore tax or prevent or punish or control are the ones that aren't recorded at all. You can, you can do this job from home. 
You don't have to travel to Concord or Washington to protest or testify. You don't have to run for office. You don't have to stuff envelopes, knock on doors, or participate in phone banks, or go to school board meetings, although those are all great things to do. You can change the world by changing yourself and helping the people choose close to you do the same. My favorite model of expertise comes from the book Mount Analog. The idea is that there's a series of stations along the route to the top of the mountain. Before you set out for the next one, you pause to help someone on the previous one get to where you are. What I love about this is the idea that you don't have to be the top of the mountain, an expert, to teach someone else what you know. For example, I can teach you about math or programming or science or kung fu or shooting or how to harvest a chicken or debone a pig or cut down a tree or a lot of other things. I'm not the best at any of these things, but I can teach someone what I know now, and that helps me learn more. Karate master Ed Parker used to tell his new students, I'm not going to show you my art. I'm going to share it with you. If I show it to you, it becomes an exhibition, and in time it will be pushed so far to the back of your mind that it will be lost. But by sharing it with you, you will not only retain it forever, but I too will improve. This goes a step beyond do it yourself to something even better. Do it together. I asked a question earlier. How would the world look if we expected children to be a normal part of it? I think the answer is this. We would have a do it together culture full of people doing useful, interesting stuff which is exactly what kids need to be surrounded by once we get them out of the isolated school box. Ann Underwood has been a planetary scientist, artificial intelligence researcher for NASA, and the director of the renowned Ask Dr. Mass Service and co-founder of Bardo Farm and Shaolin Rifle Works. He's a popular speaker at Liberty-related events. He speaks at Liberty Forum every year, uh, very popular at Porkfest. He lives in Croydon, New Hampshire, responsible for a lot of outcry in politics in Croydon, New Hampshire in the last couple of years. Because I read this to you today because I think it's important. And it's one of the things I've talked about loosely. And one of my favorite quotes is how can one man change the world? Simple, by burning it down. How do you burn down and destroy the systems that oppress you? You opt out of them. You exist outside of them, and you facilitate the existence of others outside of them, and you help others to escape them. It's one of the beauties of cryptocurrency. It's one of the beauties of alternative currency models. It's one of the beauties of libertarianism, not as a political philosophy, but as an ethical and moral and lifestyle choice the antithesis of politics. It's self-reliance and self-ownership. It's opting out of such a system and instead doing it yourself and doing it together. Now, Barefoot Learning by Ian Underwood is an incredible quick read. I know we went over it. I told you it's very quick, very easy. It's still 100% worth picking up a copy for yourself. It's available on Kindle. I prefer the paperbacks. And it makes a great gift. It's one of those books that can break down the necessity of opting out of the system and how the system is broken and doesn't accommodate human existence. It's a great gift for those you think might need to be woken up. And the holidays are coming up. In the description of the video, there's a link for bareminimalbooks.com. That's Ian's website where he does sell his books and has his other ones. Uh, including licenses of the new draft cards and uh, a few other works as well. Go pick them up. They're cheap. They're quick reads. They're fantastic. 
And it's 100% worth it. If for no other reason to challenge the way you think about what you're doing and to change your preconceived notions about how the world is supposed to work. Now, there was no new information in that book when I read it to me. Nothing new at all. But the presentation actually challenged the way I thought. I'd never made the connection about barefoot running to barefoot learning. I'd never had that realization Ian had about how children are much like feet in the way they evolved. And how our schools are much like shoes in the way they stifle innovation and evolution and cause problems and pain. Those of you who know me know I often preach the virtues of being barefoot, of returning to your natural state. And I haven't worn shoes more than a couple times in the last four or five years at this point. They're not good for your feet. And schools aren't good for your children. That's my review. We wanted to take a break and do something different, and that's what we did. Guys, check out Barefoot Learning. Check out Bare Minimum Books. Give it a review on Amazon and give it a purchase. The link is in the description. 100% worth your time. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be free. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube. And make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.